Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, we thank you for uh, today. We thank you for the wonderful uh, songs and hymns that we've already been privileged to be a part of. We thank you for the baptism. And what a great delight it is to see um, your work um, symbolized before us in that way. We thank you for your word. And as we come now to your word, we pray that you would help us to understand it and be changed by it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So friends, go ahead and turn with me to your Bibles. If you haven't yet uh, found the Scripture reading, it's in Romans chapter 7. Uh, We're looking this morning from verse 7 through to verse 20, which is just a little bit longer than my typical length of passage. And uh, you'll also find it in the worship folder uh, as well, right there in front of you, if you can't grab a Bible. Uh, There was a recent University of Virginia study. It uh, showed that when given a choice between spending six to 15 minutes in a room with nothing to do, so that was one choice, or receiving an electric shock, participants more often opted for the shock. We live in a busy world. We have cell phones that go beep, we have texts that go whistle, we have emails that are always grabbing our attention, we live in an online, in-stream, constantly interactive, worldwide web interface where if you are off the grid, you wonder whether you could possibly know how to survive. And so we live in this place where to be alone with nothing whatsoever to do other than to think freaks us out. Now, that's something that's particularly relevant in the last few years or so, but it has always been the case that when humans reflect and have space to do so, it is a little unnerving. For what becomes apparent is what lies within And that, I think, is what Paul is talking about in the passage in front of us. Now, there are different interpretations of this passage. Um, And one thing I could do for us in the next 30 minutes or so is walk through each of the interpretive options available to us. There are all sorts of technicalities here. I could do that. Um, But what I would like to do is while tipping my hat to some of those interpretive technicalities, instead let you know the framework that I am approaching and let it speak for itself as we go through it. For me, verse 22, if you've got a Bible open, you'll see that, is actually in the passage um, next time, next Sunday, that we'll be looking at. Verse 22 is an interpretive paradigm for me, though there are many other verses, but this one is in some ways most obvious. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. 
That, to me, makes it clear that Paul is here describing in this passage in front of us uh, his own experience as a Christian. For I delight in the law. That, to me, is the voice of a Christian. Now, not everyone agrees with this basic interpretation. Again, I could go kind of point for point why I think as I do, but I believe it will become obvious as we unravel the sermon. Of course, there are people down through church history who have agreed with me, by the way, uh, like Calvin and Luther, but you know. Um, but not everyone does, and there are different interpretations that are perfectly legitimate, and the ones that I have in mind, none of them have any real theological um, weights behind them in terms of the ultimate faith structure that Christians have. All I can say to you is that my view is not lightly taken. I've been studying this passage for a couple of decades or so. I've read at least 10 commentaries on it. I've listened to dozens of sermons about it. I've discussed it in small groups and over coffee with friends. Endlessly sometimes it felt. And uh, I've been wrestling with this ever since I first studied it uh, when I was about 20. In essence, in my view, this is Paul's lengthy description of what he means when he says elsewhere that he is the chief of sinners. Paul does not just say that he was the chief of sinners. He is still a sinner. And in my view, and again, there are different options, and I hope that as we unravel the sermon, this view would not only become compelling, but actually encouraging. In my view, this passage, Paul here is describing this reality in his own experience of being a Christian with the kind of honesty, which is, when you read through it, a little bit almost shocking in its vulnerability. Now, sometimes it's hopeful as we look at the passage to actually have a mental picture in our mind. Our minds operate often visually as much as verbally. The the words conjure up pictures. And I want you to have in your mind a particular mental picture as we go through this passage. I want you to picture the person who wrote the passage, the Apostle Paul. Now, obviously, we don't actually know what he looked like. Uh, Church tradition tells us that he was short and bald. Encouragement there for middle-aged men everywhere. We do know that Paul was the greatest spiritual force the Christian church has ever seen since the Lord Jesus himself. He was a great man. A spiritual giant. But to say that Paul was a spiritual giant, is, is, it's just a little bit like calling Mount Everest just a mountain. It speaks too little of Paul's extraordinary accomplishments, his church planting success, his theological brilliance, his apologetic power, the miracles 
done through Paul. And what I want you to picture is this Apostle Paul, Paul who could walk into any pulpit in the land, any professorship at any university in any country today, any presidency of any Christian organization, walk in, boom it to the next level in a matter of weeks before wandering off to another town. This Paul, I want you to picture coming alongside a Christian, putting his arm around him and saying something like this. Well, would it help you to know this about my life? This is the Apostle Paul speaking in the first person, I. The man who was, he describes elsewhere, caught up into the third heaven and saw wonders about which it is not permissible for a human to express. This Paul puts his arm, I want you to picture it like this, around a fellow Christian and describes his own sin. Now, here's the framework for our passage this morning that I would like you to have in your mind to hook everything else on. There's the mental picture. Here's the verbal framework. Be encouraged... You're not alone, and there is hope. Be encouraged. You're not alone, and there is hope. First then, you're not alone, so be encouraged. You're not alone. Now, look down with me at your Bibles or in the passage in the worship folder. Scan your eye down this somewhat lengthy passage, and I think as you do, you will agree with me pretty rapidly that these verses are quite simply organized, and they are really structured around uh, very basically two questions. The first question is in verse 7, and he says there, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. That's the first question, verse 7, and then he answers it, that question through to verse 12. And then the second question is in verse 13, where he says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? And again he says, By no means! And then he answers that question all the way through to verse 20. So that's the structure as Paul begins now to describe how we can be encouraged because we're not alone. Let's look at the first question. He asks whether the law is sin. This would be a natural question for some to ask, given how Paul has been writing in recent verses. Someone could have wondered whether Paul was saying that the law was bad or wrong, or sin. And so Paul addresses that misinterpretation of his teaching. He says, by no means, no, 
verse 12. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is not sin. In other words, you may remember when we began to get into chapter 7 a few weeks ago, we laid out the framework like this, that Paul is distancing himself from both what is called antinomianism on the one hand and legalism on the other. Antinomianism is the teaching that is against the law, anti the law. And what Paul is saying here is that he is not an antinomian. He's not against the law. Is the law sin? No. No way. By no means. He's not an antinomian. It wasn't the law's fault that when it said, thou shalt not covet, that Paul coveted. No, the law is good. It was sin within Paul that was at fault, not the law. But when it said, thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that, What happened was the sin within Paul was exposed as being really sinful. Now it's fascinating, I think, here anyway, to look through and observe the way that Paul's heart was working in this wonderful biographical section of Romans. You see, we can read the Ten Commandments and we can come to the place where it says, uh, do not murder. And if we've been well-tutored in Sunday school and church, we will know that Jesus says that uh, the right interpretation of that is not just physical murder, but hate from the heart. And the same with adultery. It is also teaching against lust from the heart. But nonetheless, when we read something like do not murder, it is easy for us, perhaps if we haven't read the New Testament or heard Jesus' teaching, or even if we have, to somehow feel inside, well, at least I don't do that. I suspect there are few people here this morning who have physically murdered. And so you can go, well, you know, I'm fine. And Paul here in this biographical section is saying, look, I know I'm basically a good person by most people's standards. And I know, in fact, that you consider me a spiritual giant. I mean, I'm an apostle. But actually, coveting, I've done that. As I say, it's fascinating how this sort of works biographically. You see, today in Christian circles, it's more common, isn't it, to pick on pride as the main sin that we always feel convicted by. I mean, if you, you know, if you confess that you're guilty of pride, it's kind of like the safe thing to confess, isn't it? You know, what's your great sin? Well, sometimes I'm a little bit proud, but you know, I do a lot of good things, so you've got to forgive me. I mean, who wouldn't be proud? I mean, you know. Um, and if you're not going to confess to pride, then it's a sure sign that you are proud, right? I love Spurgeon's great line about pride. He wrote a paper entitled, Humility and How I Achieved It. (laughs) And so it's common these days to pick on pride, but Paul picks on coveting. Now, why? Here's why I think. Coveting that commandment is, if you like, the 
the hole beneath the water line of a legalist. Paul, of course, came from a Pharisaic background, and he perhaps, it seems likely, was tempted towards thinking that he was self-righteous. You can read that description in the book of Philippians. And here comes Paul, and he reads the commandments, and he gets all the way through to the end, and it says, you shall not covet, and suddenly he realizes that Jesus' interpretation of the Ten Commandments is actually right. That all along they're dealing with integrity from the heart, inside out. You shall have no other gods before me. And so he is convicted. Coveting is like, you know, kryptonite for Superman. You know, he's super strong apart from kryptonite. It's his Achilles heel. Coveting is like kryptonite for the legalists. Now, it's also interesting, I think, in this biographical section here, that Paul doesn't actually detail exactly how he had coveted. He just says that he had. It reminds me a little bit of the story of uh, three people who were at a conference and after a particularly fiery sermon, they were encouraged to go off all the people at the conference and think on their sins and not only think on their sins but confess their sins to each other. And the first person confesses that he is greedy and he finds it hard to give as he should to the church. And the next person uh, confesses that he is at times lustful and he finds it hard not to take a second look at a woman as she passes by. And so they're talking like this and then they turn to the third person and the third person with a big smile on his face says, you know what I have to confess? I'm a gossip You have to be careful who you share what with. There is a whole cultural narrative about sharing. In Victorian days, we were all told to be buttoned up and not let anyone in, not share, be buttoned up. Postmodern culture has it completely the other way around. It tells you, you know, you've got to be authentic. You've got to let it all hang out. You know the song of postmodern culture? Let it go. Just let it go. It's fascinating how this has developed, you know, 30, 40 years ago or so. The great song was, let it be, let it be, right? Now, as we get more confidence, it's not just let it be, it's let it go. What about Christian vulnerability? It's redemptive vulnerability. You say, what does that mean? Well, a great text in church history, of course, is Augustine's Confessions, or here, Paul's Confessions. And the song is, in Christ alone my hope is found. In other words, it's all designed not to point to yourself which so much sharing does, 
but to point to him. Biblical authenticity, where ourself is defined by who God is. And there is that person around whose shoulders the apostolic arm is draped, as Paul says, be encouraged, you're not alone. But of course, so far in this first question from verses 7 to 12, it's all been the past tense. But now, in the next question, which Paul answers, starting in verse 13, Paul uses the present tense. Now again, there's been a whole lot of very technical debate about exactly why Paul switches tense here. And I could get into all of that, but let me just say that for me, Paul is continuing in this biblical authenticity, authenticity, this redemptive vulnerability. He's sharing in a Christ-like way to point to Christ. That's what I think Paul is doing. It's a matter of style or rhetoric. But it's also pastoral. I see that person looking up at Paul as he tells him that he is not alone. Be encouraged. And here's Paul talking in the past tense. A way, of course, of sort of distancing yourself from your sin. You know, I used to do that. But now, Paul, even more riskily, talks in the present tense. And the question he is answering is whether the law, if good, which he has just declared that it is in answer to the first question, if good, still produced death in him. In other words, it may be good in itself, but did it have a bad purpose? And again, Paul says, no way, by no means, not at all. He's been very clear here that he is not an antinomian. He is not against the law. Again, he says, it wasn't the law's fault, it was sin within him that it was at fault. Now, don't misunderstand Paul at this point. Paul is not saying, the devil made me do it. No, this is his sinful self, the flesh. It is him that is sinful. It's his own fault as a sinner. So there's Paul with his arm around this Christian, this fellow Christian. He say, my dear brother, perhaps you are feeling you need some encouragement to keep on fighting against sin. Let me encourage you. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, this is one of these places where those who take a different interpretive framework would say, that's just not how a Christian talks. And I understand that. It is a complicated passage with many technicalities. But for me, 
As I talk to people pastorally, it seems to me that this is exactly, sometimes, certainly not always, but sometimes how a real Christian talks. It is evidently how an apostle talks. The key is that Paul is fighting. You see, John, the apostle, speaks similarly in his first letter. He says there, he who is without sin says he's without sin. The one who says he is without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. So John speaks in his first letter. And then, of course, as we interact with John about that as a comparative text to this one, we say, well, John, what does that mean? Should we just go with the flow and do whatever we like? And morality doesn't matter in a way. Yeah, do whatever. And then John says very firmly, no. Sin shall not abide in you. You will fight. Repent. And fight some more. And if you are like Paul, there will be time, certainly not always, But there will be times when you will do the very thing that you hate to do. But you know what that means? It means you're a Christian. I have seen many things in my life, but I have never yet seen a non-Christian hating sin to such an extent that he delights in God's law. It's the battle, the fight. You're not alone, says Paul. Be encouraged. I'm right there with you. Uh, Perhaps you know the famous description of friendship by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says that when you're talking with someone and you're really getting to know them, there comes a moment when you realize that person is going to be a real friend. And for C.S. Lewis, who had this very high view of friendship, Lewis said, that moment, friendship is born at the moment when the other person is sharing something or saying something or expressing something, and you think to yourself or say out loud, me too. It's exactly how I feel or how I think. Yeah, me too. And when we hear Paul speak like this, I think all those of us who are Christians say, me too. Be encouraged. You're not alone. And there is hope. Now, The hope of this session comes more clearly in the passage we'll look at next week where Paul says in his, actually his third question, he answers this section. Uh, He says there, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He he ends this whole section on peroration. He ends exultation and praising and wow, isn't this amazing because of Christ? That's where he ends. There is clearly hope that he's leading us towards. But is there hope in the verses we're looking at this morning? I think there is. And I think you see it in a repeated phrase that Paul has his arm is draped around this dear Christian friend of his, like an experienced pastor. Paul drops 
this phrase into the conversation over and over again until the penny drops for the person to whom he is speaking. You can see it in verse 15. I do not do what I want. And then he drops it in again, verse 16. I do what I do not want. Obviously the same idea, but this time from the other perspective. Then again in verse 17. It's no longer I who do it. Once more, the same idea, but now Paul introduces the element of time. No longer as he is a Christian. There's a new power at work in him, even while he is still there resting of his sinful nature. He'll talk more about this in Romans 8, the work of the Holy Spirit, so that those who are in Christ now actually are able to fulfill the law and obey Jesus. Then again, verse 18, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now again, This is one of those places that those who take a different interpretive framework look at that and say, well, how is it possible that a Christian could say that? Surely this is perhaps Paul's experience as a religious Jew but not yet converted. Surely a Christian has the ability to obey God. The answer to that is, of course, yes, indeed. And Paul will discuss this power at work in us by God's Spirit in chapter 8, as I already indicated But the reality is that as a Christian, we still sin. He who says he was out sin uh, is a liar, and the truth is not within him. Uh, Some people find this teaching of Paul's that uh, we are made righteous by faith, even while still a sinner, deeply uncomfortable. That was a very prominent TV evangelist back in the 70s who had a long-running dispute with someone over this justification by faith alone message. And he was saying over and over again that if you taught that kind of thing, what would happen is people would go out and behave really badly. And you know who was the one who behaved really badly? The TV evangelist. Yes, indeed. Sometimes it does certainly feel like we do not have the ability. For me, Paul is using the language of a pastor. He's coming alongside someone so that they know they're not alone. Be encouraged, you're not alone. And here, in these repeated use of the same idea, dropped into the conversation until the penny drops, showing them hope. Because again in verse 19, I do not do the good I want. And then finally in verse 20, I do what I do not want. You say, why does this give us hope, pastor? Well, Paul's coming alongside. He's saying, I've been there. Sometime I've done things I do not want to do. But you know what? I do not want to do them. Am 
My guess is, my dear brother or sister, you do not want to do that either. You want to please God. And what that means is that while your flesh, your sinful nature is still battling you inside, there's also another power. I'll get to in a moment when we get to Romans chapter 8. The Spirit of God at work. And that means that you are His and He is yours. And You know what, says Paul? God can use you. You know why I know that, says Paul? I'm an apostle and he's kind of using me. You say, oh, I, 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 I understand all that, Pastor. I've got all that. You don't need to keep on drilling on about it, going on and on. I, I get all that. Well, I wonder whether you do get what you think you get or know what you think you know about this. I wonder whether when a call to service goes out, like we had earlier in our worship time this morning, you think to yourself, I'm not good enough to do that. Jesus actually has a very similar sort of risky story that is told about him in the Gospels. There was a woman who clearly was an immoral woman. And she came to a dinner party where Jesus was there reclining with a group of religious leaders and the woman came in and she began to weep and she let her hair down and she washed Jesus' feet. And Jesus turned to those religious leaders and says, she who has been forgiven much loves much and serves as well. My guess is that if Paul had told us all exactly what was the kind of coveting that he had been tempted by, that he had struggled with, the details might have surprised us. My guess is they would have seemed trivial to us. Reminds me of a story I once heard of a group of ministers at a meeting and they were asked to confess their burdens, their struggles. And one said this, another said that. And there was a very experienced, older pastor there in his 70s. And he was looking deeply sorrowful and glum and convicted and finally he spoke and he said my dear brothers I am managing to get up at five and do my two hour prayer time with the Lord but in these last few weeks I haven't been praying for an hour at one o'clock each day as I must he said with a tear in his eye As we get closer to the light, the darker we seem, the most experienced godly Christian, an apostle, 
is most constantly aware that they are doing the evil they hate? It seems to me that God brings this deep realization of our own frailty into our lives so that we might be humble. A fit vessel for his use. Grow in our dependence upon him. Our love for him. Our deep gratitude for his forgiveness. So that we can be strong in the grace of God. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, we call you Lord so readily and frequently, and seldom do we think of all that it means. And this morning, we reflect on the fact that it means that no sin, however bad, catches you by surprise or is too big for your blood to wipe pure and clean. And so we worship you, Lord, And we pray that those of us who have been forgiven much would love much and serve you as our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.